Taking up your cross, suffering and sacrificing have been superseded with name it and claim it. And as dark as I know it looks out there, the good news is that God is advancing his kingdom. It's very exciting to be a part of his great commission. It's Sheila Zelensky. The Sheila Zelensky Show, the only show to give you the truth behind the headlines, prophecy, and the deeper things of God. Now. Here is your host, End Time Watchwoman, Sheila Zielinski. Hello, listeners, and welcome to the Sheila Zielinski Show for this April 30th, 2015, the very last day of April, folks. You can listen to this show weekdays, Monday to Friday at 6 o'clock Eastern Time, right here on Worldwide Christian Radio. You can also listen via my website, weekendvigilante.com for very clear CD quality stereo sound. You can also download to any smart device the TuneIn radio app or the MixLR, which I suggest because it's a higher quality sound. MixLR app, that's M-I-X-L-R. Type in in the search bar, Weekend Vigilante. It's great. So I do have an app being worked on, but in the meantime, you can download the MixLR app. And I just want to encourage people too that I'm getting my intro changed soon. I haven't really been a big fan, to be honest, but I'm getting a really great new intro. So for the people that emailed me all the time about they hate the intro, (laughs) people are mixed about it. So I just want to encourage you that I am getting it changed. The exciting thing is I have a book being released at the end of June called Green Gospel a new world religion. It's a real pet project of mine I've been working on for about three years when it hits the shelf. So I'll be letting you know. Folks, my guest today is none other than my good friend Tim Alberino. Timothy Alberino from the Alberino Analysis and Gen 6 Productions joins me for a riveting unraveling of his expeditionary trip to South America as he unlocks the mystery of the giants and men of renown as described in the Bible and apocryphal texts. And it is my pleasure to have him on the show. Timothy Alberino, welcome. It's a pleasure to have you back on. Hey, it's good to be here. Thanks for having me on. It's so interesting, and I'm so glad you're on to talk about this trip, Tim, because every day it seems there's new reports breaking out all over the world, supernatural, preternatural, there's signs in the moons, signs in the stars, Native Americans are seeing gates opening, BBC is reporting these imps running around, Associated Press reporting giants in Saudi Arabia, North Korea, Romania, even Steve's Genesis 6 website. I mean, when you really peruse some of the headlines, 
Tombs filled with dozens of mummies discovered in Peru. Archaeologists find underground pyramid in Bolivia. Antediluvian mummies in ancient Persia. Egyptian war corresponding with Bible giants. Giant jawbone baffle scientist. City finds 360 feet below Missouri City. A giant human skeleton. Giant axes and hammers baffle the experts. I mean, it just goes on and on, Tim. I'm really interested to know what kinds of things you found. So you had planned this expedition to go to Peru. You get over there and start getting into some of the things that you discovered. Well, the purpose of the expedition was to go do some exploring and also some research on particular sites and phenomenon. One of the main purposes of going was to go check out the location that is known as Aramumudu, which is alleged to be a stargate. Obviously, uh, Steve and myself are very interested in stargates, stargate technology. So we wanted to go and research what might be considered an ancient stargate, um, or at least what is alleged to be an ancient stargate. So that was one of our primary focuses. But then also we, we wanted to go and take a look at um, what we believe is evidence for antediluvian constructions. And when I say antediluvian, I mean pre-flood constructions that were built by giants and possibly other chimeric races. So that was the purpose. Uh, when we got down there, we started off in Puno. Puno is a city in the district of Puno in Peru, and it's right on the borders of Lake Titicaca. Lake Titicaca is the highest navigable lake in the world. It's the largest lake in South America. And that's a very strange place. You're 13,000 feet, roughly 13,000 feet above sea level. So you're above the tree line. Uh, there's very little animal life up there. Uh, there's very little boskage up there. So you're, you're dealing with a very wasteland-like terrain. So it's bizarre just being up there. And then, of course, the issues with breathing and the, the amount of uh, oxygen that's in the air makes it difficult even to hike around. But... We found it to be very interesting right off right off the bat as soon as we got into the region because it's obvious that that particular area at one time supported a very large civilization. That, that was very obvious to us because of the immense amount of terracing everywhere you go. I mean, there's terracing all over the place on the sides of the mountains. And so and when we spoke to some of the archaeologists and the engineers and the different people there from the university, they confirmed to us that the terracing was pre-Inca and uh, we're convinced that it was pre-flood terracing. And the reason why that, again, is important is because that indicates that there was a large civilization there. I think there was a humongous antediluvian city. I think that that area of Peru um, and Bolivia, the, which is known as the Altiplano, which is the second highest plateau in the world, second to only to Tibet, was a critical area for whatever was going on in the world before the flood. So that, that was kind of ground zero for us in Peru. That's where we went. That's where our expedition began. Okay, so you obviously go to find some antediluvian artifacts and remains and different things, but what was the number one thing that you were hoping to uncover when you got there? Well, in terms of uh, what we're always... <laughs> hoping to find is to run into a live giant. And that sounds crazy to people, but just back in the, uh, I think it was 1987, um, there was an individual who's on an expedition. He was working with uh, somebody on the on par with like the Discovery Channel, uh, maybe National Geographic. I, I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but he was in Peru 
looking for a lost city, and he actually, him and his team actually ran into a live giant. That's what he reported, and actually had to turn around because this massive entity stepped into their the trail that they were on, stepped into the trail, and basically held his hand up, indicating that they had to halt and turn around. Because that happened in the 80s, you know, there's always the possibility that if there's a tribe of giants, they're still alive, they're still out there. So we're always looking for current contemporary sightings that have to do with giants or, or actually finding giant living giants ourselves. Obviously, to film living giants would be the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow for, <laughs> for us. But we're also looking for artifacts relating to giants, especially remains of giants. It's anything related to the antediluvian world, the chimeric races that once existed, anything relating to Atlantis, Muria, you know, these ancient uh, legendary cities, anything along those lines, we always have our eyes open for that kind of stuff. Sort of the narrative fallen angels or giants or anything from the pre-flood world, particularly, like you just said, artifacts or something that may have been occupied, some sort of symmetry, I guess, hey? Exactly. So I know that there's a lot of top secret military bases that do exist. And one of the things I found so interesting on your trip is that you went into an area where, of course, it was aggressively watched. You know, you weren't really welcome. Explain that for listeners. That was Tiwanaku. Tiwanaku is also located in the Altiplano, again, which extends from Peru to Bolivia. It also goes down Argentina and Chile a little bit, but the grand majority of the Altiplano is located in Peru and Bolivia. So in order to go to Tiwanaku, you have to, from Peru, you cross the Peruvian-Bolivian border, and it's about Oh, I'd say it's about a half an hour drive, maybe 40 minutes at the most from the Peru-Bolivian border. And um, I had never been in Bolivia. I had always assumed that Bolivia was very much like Peru. The people are, are um, for the most part, they're the Aymara races. So you're dealing with kind of the same indigenous genetic peoples as in Peru. Um, a lot of the same cultures, obviously, in the same language. In fact, their Spanish is very similar to Peruvian Spanish. I, I can't really tell the difference. So I was... I figured that, you know, we were going to be dealing with another version of Peru, but I was dead wrong. Bolivia and Peru are night and day in terms of the atmosphere when you cross that border. Wow. Uh, well, you, you're basically crossing into a North Korea Nazi kind of situation. We crossed the border with our, with our camera gear and immediately the police were all over us. When we were at immigrations getting our passports stamped. It's really the sleaziest border crossing I've ever experienced because I, and I've, and I've crossed borders with Ecuador and in different borders. I've been close to the Brazilian border, but the Bolivian border is extremely sleazy. I mean, you, it's very corrupt. It's, it's just very dirty, very oppressive. And uh, they saw our camera equipment and basically were all over us. And, and, uh, well, and they're not you know, really big fans of Americans to begin with, but then they charge you, what, an extra $100? As Americans, you have to pay an extra $100 to go into the country. They, they, they can't stand you. They don't, they don't hide the fact that they can't stand you. They hate you. Wow. And uh, that's the difference in Peru. Uh, Peru is very inviting to, um, to, to tourists. Bolivia, they tolerate you. They, they grudgingly tolerate you in Bolivia, and they watch you, especially if you have camera gear. Yeah, we had to do a little finagling to get out of the immigrations there. From there, we went to Tiwanaku, which is one of the most impressive archaeological sites in the world. It's definitely one of the most enigmatic archaeological sites. There's a lot of confusion surrounding the Tiwanaku area because the Ancient Aliens program did a lot of stuff there, and a lot of people have gone different uh, documentaries and television programs have made a big deal out of Tiwanaku, especially in relationship to aliens. 
the ancient astronaut theory. When you get out to Tiwanaku, you realize uh, there's a lot of perceptions that are misconveyed or are not conveyed at all about that area that I found surprising. For one thing, I, I always got the sense that Pumapunku, the famous Pumapunku site, and what is known as Tiwanaku were in completely separate areas when, in fact, they're not. They're, they're literally you know, a couple hundred yards from each other and maybe less. So they're in kind of in the right in the same spot, and there's a, actually a village right there, a, a Bolivian village called Tiwanaku. So it's a very confusing situation. Just the terminology surrounding that area is confusing. But when you actually get there, you talk about oppression. Man, you know, we pulled up obviously with the intention to film. You know, not to film like some big Discovery Channel thing. Just basically film for personal use. When we pulled up, the first thing we noticed was all these big signs that are prohibiting filming and just guards everywhere. I mean, just and they're military. A lot of them are military guys everywhere walking around. You got military guys walking around armed around these ancient ruins. I mean, you talk about a red flag. What's that all about? You know, how many tourist places in the world have you been to where you got military personnel walking around with submachine guns? The ruins Nazis. (laughs) Yeah, the ruined Nazis. That's That's what we call them. And, you know, bullhorns, submachine guns, pistols, the the police and the military presence there, they're armed. The community people, I found out that they contract with the communities around there. They train the community, some of the individuals from the communities, and they create sort of like a ruins police force, a Tiwanaku community police force that's in operation there. And they walk around with walkie-talkies and, and phones and bullhorns and are basically policing everybody that comes in there. Besides the military and the police presence, you have the, this community of people from the villages, and they're very nasty. They're very unfriendly. They're very hostile. You, you can't, they don't even want you really looking at stuff when you really break it down. They're just, they, they, they just stand there and scowl at you. If you dare to touch anything, they bullhorn you. Bull it's really bad. Oh and and uh, yeah, people don't have any idea. It's really bad. And I heard that they just started getting this bad about five months ago. So they, they put up ropes and, and all kind of signs. And uh, it's really oppressive. And I think it's because of all the attention that the Ancient Aliens program has brought to Tiwanaku. I think that's why they did it. They're hiding something. There's no doubt about it. They've got a completely state-sanctioned narrative about the whole thing that all the guides have to follow. They want you to think that Pumapunku and the rest of the facilities there are the same when really they're not. Pumapunku is, in my opinion, a pre-flood, antediluvian. The rest of the ruins are are post-flood. But for some reason, the government wants you to think that it's the same thing. And um, they've moved artifacts around. They've taken stuff from Pumapunku, put it over in the Tiwanaku stuff, over at the Temple of Kalasasaya. And it's just a big, oppressive, police state, very ugly situation there. I do not recommend that people go as tourists to visit that place. (laughs) Well, it sounds really like the Bolivian government just does not want this stuff dug up. They Obviously, if they're not letting you touch this stuff, I mean, that to me really seems shady right there. They've always kind of controlled the narrative, though. It's like the more of the truth they uncover, the more they have to lie. You don't film anything, basically, you're not supposed to, you know, by these New World Order technocratic oligarchy. It always seems like they put a spin on history. There's always a Catholic Church covering things up. They make sure the artifacts don't see the light of day. That That's pretty frightening when you mention that it's like they're staging, literally moving artifacts. I mean, what would be the underlying issue for that? Well, it's a complicated situation when you're dealing with Bolivia. First of all, 
the first thing that people have to understand about Bolivia is uh, it is a socialist-leaning communist country that is ruled by a dictator, Evo Morales. Evo Morales, you know, he's, he rules his country with an iron fist. He ha- he's, he's in league with Russia. He's in league with uh, North Korea. And all, all, all of the, the tyrannical sort of governments and leaders around the world are his buddies. He hates the United States. He hates the West. He's an anti-capitalist and he's, he's anti, what he would say, anti-imperialist. We're imperialists to him about Bolivia. It's very much like a North Korea situation, obviously not as intense as North Korea. It's not a hermit kingdom like North Korea. On, on the surface level, that's the political scene. Then you dig a little bit deeper, and I don't believe that Abel Morales really knows what he has in Tiwanaku, even though he was inaugurated at Tiwanaku. In fact, he was inaugurated in the assembly of a bunch of what we would call shamans. They call them apus. And they were um, invoking the goddess of the earth, Pachamama, and uh, they were calling on all the different gods and invoking the spirits to, you know, to be present and to guide his administration. So it was a whole occultic deal when he was inaugur- inaugurated. They brought in shamans from Peru, from Ecuador, from all over the world. I mean, they had guys from like Saudi Arabia there, dignitaries from Africa. So it was a big deal. He was inaugurated at Tiwanaku, which is interesting. And then, um, so you, you, I think what you're dealing with in Bolivia is you're dealing with just a petty tyrant who doesn't know what he's literally sitting on, but he hates Americans, he hates the West, he doesn't want to have any of us involved in anything going on there. They want they nationalize everything there, so obviously the ruins of Tiwanaku are nationalized. That's why the it's only the Ministry of Culture that's there. It's the Ministry of uh, Culture that runs the place, along with obviously the military and the police. And so my guess, and this is of course just pure speculation, is that if anybody is under the ground there extracting stuff, it's going to be the Russians. It's going to be the Chinese. Um, well, Bolivia but- actually just inked a big deal with Russia. So that's interesting. It's, you know, obviously there is no love loss for the West at all. No, they hate us and, and they don't make any bones about it. What's really interesting, so you get to Pumapunka, the grand majority, this is interesting. So you see these massive megalithic structures, but what was so interesting is how they only go down a certain way. Go Get into that story. Yeah, Pumapunku is really, when you go to Tiwanaku, the rest is like, okay, this is interesting, but Pumapunku is absolutely mind-blowing. That's the term I keep using for it because that's what it felt like when I was there. When you get up close to those stones, and if you want to get up close to those stones, you've got to distract a guard so you can jump over the wire, because you've got to touch those stones. You've got to get up close and look at them. And when you do, the level of architecture and masonry is astounding. I mean, you're dealing with, without a doubt, you're dealing with advanced technology. There's no question about it. And that's why the guys from the Ancient Alien program, I appreciate that they really shed light on the fact that this is way beyond people just using ropes and copper and bronze chisels and so forth. We're dealing with advanced technology. The surface of the stone seems to be vitrified. Uh, in other words, it was melted. Uh, the, either the very surface of the, of the andesite was melted somehow or uh, something else was melted on top of it, like sand or something like that. But whatever the case, the surface is vitrified. And what I mean by vitrified is when you run your hand over the top of it, the top of the stones that are still preserved, that haven't been weathered as bad as some of the other ones, you feel like you're running your hand on top of a glass table. And so that's what I mean by vitrified. I mean, it's absolutely smooth, polished. Again, we're talking about andesite, which is extremely hard rock. 90 degree angles cut into this stone with absolute 
precision that it would we would have to machine this we there's no way we could do this by hand we'd have to machine it and um and so uh well that's pretty uh, incredible though if you think about vitrification in itself only super intensive heat i mean there's no way that that can just be like you said i think the the stunning part around that is you'd have to have technology capable of vitrification well, yeah, you'd have to have a, some kind of a source that could that could superheat the surface of that of the rock. So obviously, we can do that with nuclear power. We can do that with the heat and energy generated from nuclear explosions and and uh, fusion and fission. But whatever they were doing was far more advanced, uh, obviously, than the uh, traditional explanation for that stuff. I mean, if you want to know the traditional explanation, I actually stood there and kind of laughed as they were telling us. The traditional explanation, actually, I was just kind of listening in to, to the guides. They, their explanation is that they built rafts out of reeds. They felt, <laughs> they went on Lake Titicaca. They went and quarried the andesite. Quarrying andesite, it's so easy to say, but my God, to do that w- is just a massive undertaking. And then they loaded these andesite blocks onto the, onto the reed rafts on the Lake Titicaca, floated them over to the, to the Pumapunku area, then they crafted them with copper chisels and stone hammers. It's a joke. It is a joke. <laughs> well, then, I mean, so- it's like they're controlling the narrative of what they want people to think. Obviously, a very astute person like you has done a lot of research. You're not going to be fooled by that narrative. Well, the problem is that I think in our day and age now, because of all the information floating around on the Internet, a lot of people go there. And when they look at this stuff, they're smart enough to reject the official narrative. But but their default now is aliens, aliens. And I'm telling you, it's funny. I didn't I did not expect to find this, but I found that even the archaeologists and even the engineers in the area and that work in the universities, both in Peru and assumingly Bolivia, although they're probably uh, have to be pretty tight lipped about any opinions that disagree with the state sanctioned opinion, is that. The aliens did it. I mean, if you corner an archaeologist and you and and they'll tell you, oh, you know, the natives did it, the Inca did it, the Tiwanaku culture did it. They'll tell you that, you know. But then you start to press them and say, wait a minute, now you're telling me ropes, logs, copper chisels, bronze chisels, stone hammers. Are you you you're gonna look at me with a straight face and tell me that that's how this stuff was made? If you corner them, they'll break down very quickly and they'll kind of shrug their shoulders and say, well, well, what a lot of us really believe is that aliens did it. And most people believe aliens did it because you're right, it's impossible. That's what they'll tell you. That's what they told me. I'm talking about university-level archaeologists. Uh, It's very frustrating because that's the only other explanation that's being put forward to the public is aliens. And it's an alien is a cop-out. It it really bothers me. It's such a cop-out just to say alien. It's so easy to go there and just say, oh, aliens did it. Natives couldn't have done it, so it had to be aliens. That's childish to me. That's infantile to me because... The Bible and the and some of the pseudepigraphic texts and a lot of the ancient texts uh, lay out a very intricate, amazing story that explains all of this. So it's really a cop out just to say aliens did it when there's a whole story that we can trace back to the antediluvian world that really explains everything. And really, that's why Gen- that's why we started Gen Six Productions. Our logo for Gen Six Productions is an open padlock in the form of a of a number six. So it's an open padlock, but it also forms the numeric number six. And uh, basically what we're saying is that Genesis 6, the narrative of Genesis 6 unlocks the mystery behind places like Tiwanaku 
and it does. It absolutely unlocks the mystery. You don't have to say aliens. All you have to do is understand the fallen angels and their offspring, and that gives you the entire picture of why this stuff is here and how it got here. If you're asking engineers or archaeologists, you know, a logical explanation, you know, how did this quarry get here? How did these giant megalithic stones get placed here? And as you say, they'll say hundreds of years, thousands of men, logs and ropes. And it's that's just, right. That's it's, the explanation. It's like the default explanation because there is a, as you mentioned, the Genesis 6 narrative, there's always a complete rejection of the biblical truth. And I like something that you touched on, Tim, saying we get this narrative with whether it's Von Daniken, the chariots of the gods, it's always, it's an ancient alien landing pad. It was an ancient, it's always the aliens did it. That is the narrative. They cannot conceive the fallen angels using forbidden, for lack of a better word, technology. This stuff really confirms and affirms the whole council of scripture, yet there's such a complete rejection of the truth when it comes to these guys' narratives. If they concede fallen angels, then they have to concede the Bible. They have to concede that there's truth to the Bible. If they have to concede that there's truth to the Bible, truth to the Old Testament, then they have to concede that there could be, there might be, truth to the gospel of Jesus Christ, which puts them in a very precarious situation, namely hell. So they will reject it out of hand for any ridiculous postulation, any postulation, anything, any crazy theory, as long as it's not the Bible. As long as it's not the biblical narrative, they will consider anything, which is completely asinine and ridiculous. When you boil it down, what it is, is it's, it's rebellion, is what it is. It's rebellion against the truth. It's amazing, you know, the vitriol that I get from people who, who find me on YouTube or on Google, who they make no arguments against the postulates that I put forward in my analysis. All they do is cry and complain and scream and cuss and say very obscene things about the Bible and about the gospel without putting forth any kind of a logical explanation of their own. They just attack the scriptures and they attack you know, the biblical narrative. So at the heart of it, it's rebellion. It's just rebellion against God, against the truth. You know, they reject the truth and they'll, re- they'll receive any lie in the place of truth, even if it's as ridiculous as alien landing pads. Now, let me say this. I respect a lot of the work that a lot of these guys do. You know, let's just call them the ancient alien, the ancient astronaut crowd, because at least these guys help to bust open the traditional narrative of history, the conventional narrative of history. They are right in many cases. They're, maybe they're 50% right you know, about the way that some of this stuff was constructed. It's high technology, advanced societies. You know, We can agree on all of that. But when you go to a place like Pumapunku and you look at the ruins there, and you walk away saying it was an alien landing pad, I'm telling you, there's something really wrong with the way your brain works because there's not even nearly enough stuff that's been uncovered, that's been excavated to draw any kind of conclusions as to what the heck it is. And that's a fact because the one thing that is apparent when you're standing there is that the grand majority of this structure, whatever it is, is still under the ground. All we might be seeing is the very top of a structure. This might be the very top of a tower. This might be what was on the roof. You know, I mean, the whole thing is under the ground still. In fact, the whole valley, I believe that the entire Altiplano, 
again, extending from Peru to Bolivian parts of Chile and uh, Argentina. I believe that the entire thing under the ground is just a massive cities, just the remnants of a massive civilization. And you can see that in the cemetery when you're driving. You know, I'm convinced that I've, I saw a couple of, at least a couple of pyramids that are, that are basically covered over in Earth, just like we saw in Sardinia. And I even asked some of the people there, archaeologists and engineers, hey, I saw something that looked like a pyramid on the way here. And they told me, yeah, you're probably right. It probably is a pyramid. And my question then is, well, why hasn't anybody excavated it? Because it's not, it doesn't fit into the, into the traditional Inca stuff. If it doesn't fit into the Inca thing, nobody cares about it. Because that's everything is centered around the Inca. Everything is centered around the Tiwanaku culture. Nobody wants to look at or consider the other stuff that is still buried because it points to an advanced ancient civilization that just dashes to pieces the conventional uh, historical narrative and that makes them all look like idiots. In fact, they told me that, by the way, an anthropologist and in the in the jungle, literally told I, we asked them point blank why why do the historians here why do the archaeologists why do the anthropologists in private tell us that aliens did it but in public they they maintain these ridiculous notions about the natives his answer was this because it makes the, it will make them look like idiots if the truth is revealed and everybody finds out that they've been basically supporting a ridiculous lie this whole time knowingly supporting a ridiculous <laughs> yeah. lie yeah especially the knowingly part right well and it's so interesting as you were approaching i remember you thinking they've only gone down four or five feet why did they stop there why do you think they stopped there because what's under the ground is majestic level top secret stuff you can excavate anything post-flood you can excavate post-flood stuff all day long but you can't excavate pre-flood stuff. You start <laughs> exactly. excavating pre-flood stuff, you start uncovering angel tech. You start uncovering evidence for giants. That's majestic level stuff. And when I say that, I mean clearance levels that are a high, much higher than the president of the United States. So they can't. It's hands off. I mean, the issue is that, again, the, the Bolivian government is certainly, certainly has to know that there's a ton of stuff still under the ground that is on par with Pumapunku or related to Pumapunku, but for some reason, they refuse to dig any further. Instead, they're spending all of their time and energy excavating what is obviously post-flood, what is emulating the pre-flood world. See, everything that was done in the post-flood world in terms of the pagan realm, such as the Tower of Babel, such as Nimrod and that whole situation, is emulation of the pre-flood rebellion against God. It's emulation of the empire of the gods. And when I say the empire of the gods, I'm talking about the time when this planet was ruled by 200 watchers, fallen angels. Obviously, the, the devil was in there as well, Satan himself. Uh, he wasn't a part of those that particular group, but he was. he's always had his hand in things since the beginning. And not only these angelic entities, these archons, as the New Testament calls them in the Greek, but but also their offspring. And their offspring were not human beings. Their offspring were hybrids, their offspring were giants, and their offspring were chimeric beasts, which were sentient. And see, that's the key that people have to understand, that there were sentient beasts, sentient creatures that were not fully human, that were probably, in many cases, far more attuned to the supernatural realm because of who their fathers were. 
not all of their fathers were directly fallen angels. Most likely what happened was that there was a group that who that could claim that their fathers were fallen angels. They came directly, they were progenerated directly through the uh, product of uh, angels copulating with whatever animal or beast on the earth. Those sentient creatures would then go and have their own offspring. So you have, I mean, you literally have a, a very complex system of sentient conscious creatures that were existent on this planet in the pre-flood age. That postulate, let's call it the biblical postulate, gives answer for, it gives an answer to all of these megalithic sites, to the ancient technology, even if we were to extrapolate that out, even to bases on Mars, bases on the moon, quote-unquote aliens in outer space, flying saucers, what people don't understand is that, is that if you take the biblical narrative at face value, you take a look at some of the extra-biblical texts, such as the book of Jasher, such as the book of Jubilee, such as the book of Enoch, such as the book of the Giants, then basically what you have is a, an explanation that is far more logical than any ancient astronaut or evolutionary theory. Uh, far more logical. Well, and what's really interesting is they always... Again, these shows, you know, they say, oh, the Maya, the Inca, the Aztecs, they're such lovely people. But actually, these ancient civilizations were bloody demonic systems of paganism. Yeah. And it's like the nice little tribes of the Aztecs. But again, you've you've touched on something really important. And I think that is that Maya, Inca, Aztecs, they would have, again, technology that was even ancient to them, a whole other level of technology. Yet people say, well, they the Mayans created this technology, but they had in their possession knowledge that, let's face it, come on, Tim, they could not have even possibly That's attained right. on their own. This is extremely highly cosmological models and it talks about pharmacology. Yeah, like pharmacology, sorcery, metallurgy, meteorology, really complex advanced levels of technologies, right? Oh, they did. And what people need to understand is that the ancients worshiped the gods. Obviously, we all know that we all learn from an early age in school that the ancients were dumb and they worshiped, you know, sticks and stones. And but what we don't understand is that there is a level of reality, reality to that that's missing in most of our educations or in the way that we think about the ancient world. And it's this. They worship the gods with good reason because the because the quote unquote gods did exist on the planet. They were on the planet. They were doing things. They were causing people to worship them. And of course, I'm referring to fallen angels. And so in many cases, the Bible talks about, when, or at least in some cases, the Bible references the worship of idols as the worship of demons. And uh, so it's not that people, not that the ancients were stupid and were just worshiping sticks and stones. They were worshiping the reprobate entities. They were, they were worshiping the, the rebels that defied God. I mean, these are very real entities. This, this was a very real situation. The worship of these entities always involved bloodshed and debauchery and, and all kinds of sexual stuff and uh, the drinking of blood and, and everything that is, that is uh, enveloped in the occult is, is what they were doing. Why? 
because they were worshiping the reprobate, because they were involving themselves in the fallen angels, in the darkness, in the kingdom of darkness, and that's what the kingdom of darkness is. The kingdom of darkness is blood, it's violence, it's rebellion, it's hatred for the truth, it's hatred for God, it's hatred for the Son of God. That's what the darkness is, and that's how it manifests. And when these ancients, any ancient civilization that gives themselves over to paganism is going to produce those fruits. But at the same time, they're going to have, in many cases, access to the forbidden knowledge, to the forbidden technology that was divulged by these entities in the pre-flood race. So, yes, it is dark, it's demonic, but it's real. It's real technology, it's real knowledge, it's real darkness, it's real entities, it's real gods, and that's what people have to understand. We have to get away from this notion that the... Uh, the Maya, the Aztec, the Inca were just a bunch of dummies worshiping <laughs> idols, and and it's it, yes, they were worshiping idols, but the, what they were worshiping was the entities behind those idols. The very demonic, demonic realm, yeah. And speaking yeah. of demonic realm, Devil's Gate. I want you to talk a little bit. That is so interesting about you know the Spanish priest dissuading people around this certain Stargate. I mean, talk a little bit about that Stargate, even potentially to Atlantis, because this door, sandstone carved door and the ancient legend around it, talk a little bit about that. That's so fascinating. The, the site is referred to as Aramumuru. And um, when we got down there, we found a lot of information out, actually being there in person that, that you, you really will not, will not find on the web concerning that place. Um, we found out, for example, that the, that the name Aramumuru is contrived. Uh, it was invented by a local apu, a local shamanic guide who's also owns some hotels and does um, tours. So there was a there was a financial incentive involved in creating some of the legends around that site. Basically, this person um, realized that if he could create a big deal out of this very interesting and enigmatic location, that he could he could generate profit off of this, and that's what he began to do. So when you get down there, you got to start immediately. You realize that there's a lot of new age BS that you have to shift through. In fact, I found it very interesting that when we were talking to one of the native Aymara peoples, this this was an old woman in her late 70s or early 80s. She only spoke Aymara, which is the which is the indigenous language, and in fact they're referred to as the Aymara people, but that's also the 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 name of their language. This woman. I was asking her about the Aramumuru location, which, by the way, is a it's a what appears to be a door or a gate that has been carved into the face of what I think it's red sandstone. That's what it looks like to me. It might not be, but it's carved into the face of this rock, this large outcropping of rock. So there's a gate or a door that's carved into the rock. It's been there for many, many years. I mean, way back before the Incas. And nobody knows who made it or why, but this this old woman was was telling us uh, one of the legends that that definitely goes all the way back to the Inca, concerning this location, which is now called Aramumuru, being a stargate, a portal. And she told us a story about a group of musicians of, mus- of musicians during the uh, during the empire of the Inca that were passing by the location of the alleged stargate. And we're playing their music, and they act inadvertently activated the gate, and one of them got sucked into the gate, disappeared into the gate. Now, I've heard different variations of this story where all of them went into the gate. I've heard variations where the person came back out of the gate and told about what was in there. And then I've heard her story. I believe what she told us was that 
the person never came out. That is an ancient legend. That legend has nothing to do with the New Age movement. That's the kind of legends we were really after. And uh, that is confirmed in history. And, you know, she told us that it was told to her by her grandparents, her great grandparents. So it goes back many years. And I said it was confirmed in history because the Spanish have record of the Inca legends surrounding the Aramomuro location, that the Inca did believe it was a portal. And uh, they worshipped at that place. And so naturally when the Spanish conquistadores came and the Dominican order came with them and the priests, they began to destroy the Inca idols, destroy the temples and impose Roman Catholicism, which was basically just a version of the ancient mystery schools of Babylon. So it wasn't really any better, but they imposed the, the Catholicism on Roman Catholicism on them. And they began to refer to the Aramumuru Stargate as the gate of the devil or the devil's gate with good reason because there was legends, uh, lots of legends uh, that talk about demonic stuff coming through or going into that gate. There's a lot of petroglyphs and stone carvings because I know, I mean, my family is they're Blackfoot, and I know that the various Blackfoot tribes have a lot of, we're talking, you know, five and six hundred year traditions, and these are stargates in some of these major areas all over the world, and yet these oral traditions, I mean, you're not, not just going to make that up. You know, an ancient story of this group of musicians, and it's really interesting about the, it always seems to be this theme I find, even in oral traditions in my family, about harmonic resonance sort of frequencies seem to be go sort of lockstep with these gates don't they yes opening gates with frequencies is a common thread that we find of course uh, we find what what we consider to be at least in some cases the stargate glyph which is the spiral which we found at pumapunku so there's always uh there's always reports of magnetic anomalies in areas that are, that are alleged alleged to be uh, ancient stargates and um so for people who are kind of rolling their eyes, you're dealing with a level of technology that was taught to the inhabitants of the earth by angels. That's that's what the narrative, that's what the biblical narrative and the narrative of the book of Enoch and the narrative of the book of Jasher and Jubilee says, that it was the fallen angels who taught what is called in the book of Enoch the forbidden secrets of heaven. It's interesting, though, that God calls those the worthless secrets. We know that the ultimate mystery, the great mystery, the great secret, the great knowledge of heaven is the knowledge of the Son of God. That's the true knowledge. That's really what, what we ought to elevate in terms of knowledge and what, and what obviously Scripture does elevate as true knowledge is knowledge in the Son of God. But of course, the occult world is obsessed with secret knowledge from the fallen angels, knowledge that is taught by spirit beings, and uh, but but it's real. I mean, the technology is real. This technology, the activation of stargates, the use of stargates, the employment of advanced techniques of, of building or vitrification, this all comes from fallen angels. And we have to remember that the the, the book of Job tells us that the uh, Benai Elohim, the sons of God, a- the angels, shouted for joy when the earth was created. So we, we, we can then infer, it's logical to infer then that the angels understand physics. They understand the mon- molecular cons- construction of things. They understand the, the atomic level, the subatomic level. They understand these things. 
And so they would certainly know how to manipulate uh, molecules. We know, science has proven that we can manipulate molecules with sound frequencies. We know that sound frequencies do all kinds of things. I mean, uh, I think it was Apple. Somebody came out with a little a, um, audio device that using the sound waves, waves it levitates a, a ball. You've probably seen that. It's, actually, yeah. it's an actual product that you can go on Amazon and buy. So... We know that frequencies and sound waves can do the kinds of things that are alleged in these legends. It is, it is possible even just on a humanistic scientific level, but add in fallen angels, add in the secret knowledge that they have, add in the fact that they were present when the earth was created. They understand physics. They understand the physics of the universe. Of the universe. And you have a very plausible situation. So in other words, the idea that Aramamudu could be an actual stargate is plausible in a biblical context. Well, Sanskrit texts are always filled with these references to gods who fought battles. There's myths around huge post-flood atomic wars. There's, you know, you look at the Vimana flying crafts. You look at, uh, look at the Nazi occult eugenicists, too. I mean, they were exceptionally interested in ancient Indian Tibet. Hitler himself had wrote about that. They sent, ex, you know, these expeditions to both uh-huh. Tibet and in India in the 30s to go and gather esoteric evidence and then of course you have these very nefarious occultic Nazi eugenicists that had alien technology look at the high frequency the bell you've got Hans Kummler the head of the SS he was in charge of secret projects of the Third Reich and they had alien technology Tim yes they did they did and uh, they claimed to be in contact with non-human entities and it's interesting because these entities, in order to get in contact with them, you have to you have to go you have to use the vehicle of the occult. What is the vehicle of the occult? It's paganism. It's the it's bloodshed. It's it's sexual debauchery. It's basically accessing these forbidden realms, and it and they are forbidden. And the knowledge is destructive to the human race, but nonetheless, it is real. It's not fictitious. It's real. For example, the uh, the 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 real maidens. Uh, which were basically a group of mediums, contacted the, the, the Vril, what they call the Vril. And what did they get? They got blueprints from whatever they were in contact. Call them demonic beings, call them aliens, call them hybrids. Whoever it was that they were in contact with gave them blueprints for making flying saucers, for constructing flying saucers and mercury-driven engines and things like this. So we're talking about real technology, not just... Um, not just sort of fuzzy, demonic, theoretical stuff or spiritual stuff. We're talking about nuts and bolts technology that comes through the occult when in contact with these uh, entities that uh, are adversarial to the human race and are certainly adversarial to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, and that's the key, the gospel of Jesus Christ, because it's really, this is the time, Tim, that it's critical for people to understand the technology of the ancients and how that's really coming to the foreground, because a lot of people say, oh, Sheila, get off the, you know, I had Steve on last week about Genesis Giants Revived, Genesis 6 Giants Revived, and people are like, why do you talk about this stuff, Sheila? Why are you discussing, who cares about, you know, Nephilim, Raphaim, who cares, (laughs) A lot of people are just, you know, it's okay that the Anunnaki did everything, though, Tim. They don't want to talk about the biblical narrative. And one of the things I found so interesting is that when you were there, even, 
I mean, you had engineers and archaeologists, and even your friend was at your engineer friend that had basically said, oh, yeah, they're moving some of this stuff. So, you know, you're supposed to go to see some giant bones that were hidden. A prominent archaeologist was going to take you. It was the University of Lima, I'm not sure. And then suddenly, nothing to see here, folks. So, you know, there was obviously people watching you. There was obviously a heavy-duty concern that you guys were there. But I think the wonderful thing is that in all of this, you got to speak at a conference. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, we, we were invited to speak. I was invited to speak at the uh, University of San Martin, this head of the science department, who's a wonderful lady, um, uh, invited us to speak and put together a, a little convention. And uh, there was a good turnout, I mean, uh, for the university in San Martin. It is a prominent university. It's, uh, it's, the, it's like a national university. It's the biggest one in the dis- district of San Martin, which is in the Amazon, high jungle of the, of the Amazon in Peru. And, uh, you know, we had something like, I don't remember, we had like 50 people or something like that, which is a good, sh- which is a good turnout for that university. And it was all young people, obviously, and some of the professors were there. Interestingly enough, they had never, ever, ever, ever heard of the Gen 6 biblical narrative, you know, fallen angels, giants, ancient technology kind of stuff in, in, in a biblical context. It never, it never even registered to them, but they were all familiar with the Anunnaki. They were all familiar with ancient aliens. They were all familiar with all the bogus stuff floating around. So when people say, why does it matter? Who cares? That's why it matters. Look, as believers, part of what we do is we, we are the keepers and the defenders of truth. If anybody is a keeper and defender of truth on the planet, it is us. So why should we remain silent when all of these lies are being propagated, especially when our explanation is far more logical? So uh, that's what we did. I mean, as I presented the, the Gen 6 narrative. I, pr- I pretty much laid out the, the story um, and um, pointed out the fact that uh, there is there's something very interesting going on before the great cataclysm, which was the flood of Noah. Everybody knows there was a great cataclysm. And uh, so many of these people who are the Anunnaki people and the you know, ancient alien people, they, they try their hardest to get around the flood. So yeah, there was a great cataclysm, but they want to make it, you know, might have been a flood. No, it, it, there was a great ca- cataclysm. It was called the flood of Noah. And <laughs> the evidence for that is everywhere. That was the great cataclysm that brought to ruin. And people need to understand and this is uh, what I explained to them at the university, that part of the flood, part of the reason God sent the flood was to wash away the world, the, the, the empire of the gods and the remnants of their society and their world and their technology was literally to wash it away and bury it. That was part of the, part of the reason why God sent the flood. And that was intentional, wasn't it? It was Barry? intentional. Absolutely. Wash it away. It was like washing the earth, purging the earth of of that knowledge, that the knowledge of the fallen, of the reprobate, the knowledge of those fallen angels is deadly dangerous to the human race. It goes back to Tim, you know, when I said, who cares? Well, you should care, people, because a complete rejection of the truth of the biblical Genesis 6 narrative, I think, is the 
origin of really spiritual warfare. These entities that set this ball in motion, Tim, are warring against God's people. And as the scripture, we all know it, Steve quotes it all the times, these days weren't short, there would be no flesh left alive. This stuff is orchestrated for a purpose. And what is the malevolent overtone since, you know, Satan earned himself a one-way ticket out of heaven at the ultimate coup d'etat was... Obviously, it's deception, it's counterfeit of everything God did, and this is really the ultimate destruction in the end days. And so you'd think people would want to know this information, wouldn't you? Well, yeah. I mean, anybody that's interested in the truth ought to be interested in the truth of the history of this planet. I mean, you know, so many believers will go to uh, will go to public school or to universities and will believe everything that they're told about history from their teachers and we all know that one of the one of the uh, fundamental truths about history is that it's written by the victors so we know and we're told that history is written by the victors and we ought to just assume that it's been manipulated and are we going to believe that a world that's governed by the devil is going to is going to put forward an accurate depiction of the story of our planet and of our race? Of course not. We as believers have to dig. We have to, we have to go deeper. We have to use, uh, use our, our intellect and logic, and we have to go to the scriptures, and we have to find out what the story really is. And it's there. I mean, it's there. It's, a, it's on the pages uh, of the scriptures. It's written in the ancient texts of the world. It's confirmed all over the earth, again, both in the ancient texts, but also in stone, literally confirmed in stone in these megalithic sites, in these ancient sites that obviously employed ancient technology. And again, who cares? Well, everybody's going to be caring pretty soon when (laughs) droves of people, droves of quote-unquote Christians are going to be falling away from the faith because of the lie that's coming concerning aliens and concerning uh, the Anunnaki or whatever it's going to be. Um, It will involve uh, non-human races and what they allegedly taught the human race or did with the human race or even created the human race. There's no question that that's coming. That's already in the works. And how do you buffet that? You buffet it with the truth. You, you defend the truth. But how can you defend, how can you give an answer if people say, well, wait a minute. Well, how do you explain this? How do you explain flying saucers? Look, they're, you know, they're real. They exist. How do you explain it? And the current explanation for most believers is, oh, it's demonic. That's not good enough. You have to understand the story, the detail of the, the details of the story. And let me tell you something. The apostles understood the story. The early church understood the story because Peter references it, and he references it in a way that he, assuming that his audience already knows when he talks about those angels that, were bound, that are bound in Tartarus, that left their original estate. He's referencing the book of Enoch. Jude quotes the book of Enoch. So it is taken for granted in the New Testament that the audience that the apostles are talking to are familiar with the story. And what story am I talking about? We're talking about the story of Genesis 6. We're talking about the story of the book of Watchers and the book of Enoch. So they were familiar with it. So they were able to take the gospel. They were able to take everything that they were learning and being taught by the apostles and apply it to the context of the story of this planet of the human race. You have to understand the story of the human race to rightly understand the gospel because it's, it's what the gospel's about. It's about the fall of mankind and then the redemption, but not only of mankind, but also of the earth. Uh, the earth is, is, is remade. It, it, Jesus says he makes all things new. He remakes the earth. 
It's redemption of the planet, not just of our race. We're the ones who screwed this planet in the first place. We're the ones who caused the death. We're the ones who caused the uh, contention in nature. Contention in nature, nature isn't a result of evolution. Contention in nature is a result of sin. And guess what? We're the ones who brought sin into the world. It wasn't the devil. It was us. We brought the contention. We brought the death. And the beauty of the gospel is that the, 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 in the mercy of God, he gave us a path of redemption through his son, Jesus. Well, amen, and I can't end it on a better note, Tim. Tim, you're working on a post-production video of your trip. When will that DVD be available, and how people can really get behind you guys and support your expeditions and the work that you're doing over there, which I think is so imperative in this, in this time? Well, the very first major production from Gen 6 Productions is going to be this documentary, which we're working on now. We're literally in the process of editing it. We're hoping to have it out early summer, but hopefully sometime in June. And the best way that people can support us is to buy it, to watch it. Uh, well, I'm not 100% sure. It's definitely coming out in a DVD format. So, you know, obviously uh, there's a lot of, we're, we are bringing, we are going to these locations and we are bringing the biblical perspective. This is something that hardly anybody's doing. Um, really trying to lay out the whole narrative of Genesis six. So this is th- this this documentary and the documentaries that are going to follow are going to be a powerful tool for people who are trying to explain to family members and friends, hey, th- you know, there's you need to understand the history of what really happened in the days before the flood and why it's relevant. These are going to be tools to do that. So if people want to support us, watch our documentaries, buy our documentaries get behind what we're doing, promote what we're doing. That's the best way. Folks, Tim's information is linked there at weekendvigilante.com. All his information and his web links are there. Get behind this, folks. So into this ministry. Support their effort. It's so important. Like Tim just said, in order to know what is coming, we have to know what's happened. And I think this is integral work. You know, when he spoke at this university, for the first time, people were hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think that is so important to put these pieces into the puzzle. There's no one else really doing this kind of work. Support Tim, support his crew. And Tim, finally, give out your website. Well, basically, our our primary location is stevequill.com. People can log into stevequill.com. You know, we've got all kinds of information on there. Anything that's coming out in the future will be featured there. Uh, any news about it, updates will be featured there. People can also check out our YouTube channel, which is Genesis 6 Giants. It's the official Steve Quayle YouTube channel, and uh, you, you can find the Elbrino analysis there. Basically, uh, people can just stay tuned to stevequayle.com. Well, I appreciate you coming on the program tonight, Tim. Thank you so much, and I do hope you come back and see us soon. Well, thank you for having me, me me on. It's always a pleasure, Sheila. Thanks, Tim. Folks, that was Timothy Alberino. You can go to stevequail.com, click on the icon that says the Alberino analysis, bookmark that. Also, do order the DVD when it comes out. That'd be a great way to support the endeavors of Tim and his crew. Very interesting work, and I think it's very worthy of getting behind. So do bookmark stevequail.com, click on the Alberino analysis, and it'll take you straight there. Also, again, if you go to weekendvigilante.com, all the information, including Genesis 6 Productions, is linked there on my website. Folks, I've been getting a lot of people inquiring about the podcast. And again, you can go to weekendvigilante.com, click on the big pink button on the right-hand side. It'll take you directly to my podcast. 
sign up, follow it, and you'll get all the latest updates. Also sign up for my free e-newsletter. The next one's coming out tomorrow. So do sign up for that. It's free. And if you want to connect with people, I want to also remind people that I'm going to have by the summer developed remnantroundup.com. It is under construction, but it is going to be a way for people to connect with people all over North America in their own cities and states. It's going to be very exciting to connect the remnant. I'm looking forward to that. We've been working on some different concepts. I've got some different designers trying to come up with the best format to connect people. And I'm really excited about the project Remnant Roundup. It's very exciting stuff. So get behind that too, folks. And please remember that this ministry is 100% listener funded. So please do support this ministry financially, prayerfully and financially, because if you want this program to remain on the air, please do, if you're blessed by the show, get behind it financially and with your prayers. And I thank you for that in advance, folks. Tomorrow we got a great show, a surprise guest. Good night and God bless. The Sheila Zielinski Show is sponsored by SteveQuayle.com, offering a wide variety of products, links, headlines, and information for the end times. Order Steve's new book, Little Creatures, by visiting SteveQuayle.com. Dare to discover, learn, prepare, and be amazed.